1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today's interview is a bit unusual as Steve Collins, the author of the work we'll be discussing, tragically passed away in early 2018. Fortunately, Justin McDaniel, who is close with Professor Collins and is also a scholar of Theravada Buddhism at the University of Pennsylvania, took it upon himself to edit this book which at the time of Colin's passing existed as a first draft. The result is Wisdom as a Way of Life, Theravada Buddhism Reimagined, published by Col- Columbia University Press in 2020. McDaniel has written a 45-page editor's introduction to the book, which helps the reader understand the overarching structure and themes of the work. Professor McDaniel, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
2: Oh, Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be on it. I appreciate it.
0: So I just wanted to, since we're talking about a deceased scholar, I just wanted to give a quick uh, thumbnail sketch of his career. He was born in England in 1951, and he wrote his doctoral dissertation at Oxford in 1979. Um, And that work was later turned into his first book, Selfless Persons. He taught then at Bristol in England and then Indiana and Concordia before ending up at the University of Chicago in 1991 where he taught for 27 years until his untimely death. Besides Selfless Persons, he published the rather massive Nirvana and Other Buddhist Felicities, Utopias of the Poly Imaginaire in 1998, then a sort of condensed and revised version of that book in 2010 entitled Nirvana, Concept, Imagery, Narrative, and then a Polygrammar in 2006, and finally the work that we'll be discussing today. And in addition, he wrote many, many articles, and there's a really wonderful collection of some of those articles titled Self and Society, which was published by Silkworm Books in 2014. I've actually used it in some of my classes. So uh, I wanted to begin by asking you what you see as one or some of um, Colin's greatest contributions to the field of Buddhist studies.
2: That's a, that's a big question. Um yeah, I. Um, it's sometimes hard for me to separate the personal and the uh, professional or intellectual when it comes to Steve. Um, I actually, I, I you know, I think a lot of people assumed I was his student, okay. um, and I wasn't. Uh, I uh, I actually applied to study with him, um, and I was accepted to the program at UChicago. chicago um and then when i was trying to decide um where to go i went i flew to chicago and i interviewed well i mean i'd already been accepted i guess but i wasn't so it wasn't an interview it was kind of just like meet and greet type of thing Mm -hmm. Um, and he like i told him i mean he knew what i was going to work on he read my proposal and he was really nice and he just said like that's great i think it's a you know, great. But I just, I'm not going to be much of a help. I have no interest in Thailand. I'm interested in the vernacular. And like, I'll like work with you on Pali. And I'm like, well, that's not what I want. (laughs) Like, and so like, you know, I didn't go, I didn't study with him. Um, And so it's really in this, that was in 90, 98. And yeah, he, he seemed he seemed exhausted, you know, like, uh, I mean, he had just published the Nirvana book and, um, I don't know, he, he, he wasn't, he changed so much. And, you know, once I was in a doctoral program and we started to meet up, we met in Thailand and I gave a talk early on. And like my first year as a professor in Chicago, we just ended up, he visited Harvard a couple times when I was there and like, gave a talk. Like, we ended up becoming friends. Like, we came became friends, like, outside of work. Um, I think we both smoked. Um, we both Irish. Like, I, I don't know, like, what it was. You know, like, we talked about music a lot. Um, and, like, our work is so completely different. And it, our approach is completely different. Our training is, you know, a little similar, but pretty different. Um, and, our writing styles are just completely different, and like it, it's just I don't know. We, and so I guess Steve never trained me. He never, and you know we wrote an article together in 2010 um, on Thai nuns and poly education, and we did field work together. And I did most. I did like the translations, the field work, like you know interviews in Thai and things, and you know, um, he. He, you know, his, his there were ideas were his in the article. And then we, we went through the field notes together and we kind of saw aesthetics and beauty as kind of the most important thing out of that. I just remember, like, we always just had good conversations, but it was never something where I felt like I want to learn this with Steve. And this is Steve's contribution to my intellectual life or this is, mm. you know, I, I just never saw it that way. And um, so when you ask the big question about, I can say what I think he meant to other but I don't, what he meant to me was just so, it was the little conversations, not really the still. big ideas, you know, like, and I mean, his biggest contribution, of course, is the concepts of the imaginary, um, big contributions is selfless persons, which is 1982, which, which is still used, today I still use, in a lot of people. Uh, Charlie Hallisey in his afterwards talks about the importance of the book. Charlie Hallisey actually is the one who gave me that book originally, I think. Um, and, you know, it, it, there were well, so many things he was known for. And I think a lot of times it was just like his his kind of aggression and his acerbic wit and the way he was with people. Like, it's almost like there's so many ideas he was no more, but I think sometimes Steve looms large. Like, there's almost an idea of Steve more than, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, sure,
2: sure, sure. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really not answering
0: your question Yeah, at yeah, all. no, that's fine. Well, look, let, let me go on to the next question because that's a little more specific. You um okay. and, and that's, you, you, you talked about, I mean, he was, you know, he was educated at Oxford and, mm-hmm. I mean, in a rather... Uh, what I guess nowadays we think of as a traditional manner, you know, very textual, Mm -hmm. uh, not working with vernaculars. Uh, But then you talk about how, and you just gave that example of when you visited him and he said, well, I have no interest in Thailand or the vernaculars. Uh, But you note that his uh, approach to today, Buddhism changed during the past decade or two of his life. And in your introduction, you state, and I quote, Steve's growing interest in the world of Buddhist studies beyond the close study of Pali and Sanskrit texts in the last 20 years of his short life led him to lash out at times at his former self and his early training. So I, can you explain? I mean, I think maybe we all understand this shift. I mean, the whole field sort of shifted a bit in that way. But I mean, how, how's, how, how do you think this came through in his work?
2: Um, I think it came through a lot of way. I, I Steve, I think if he was here, he would attribute that change to Nancy Everhart. Um, Nancy Everhart's book really affected him, and Nikki Tannenbaum's book really affected him. Both working on the um, and in Burma and in Sipsongpanna area where Tom Borchardt worked worked, a lot, and um, those two books, and then Joe Cook. One, I mean, Joe Cook was not his student, but she's my generation, and her book, um, you know she was doing her dissertation around the time he started getting interested in Thailand and her book really affected him too. I remember. And, um, uh, Julia Cassinetti's work when she was a got doctoral student in Chicago, Steve was affected by his students. Like he was affected. Mm-hmm. And, and he read a lot of people in like younger generations. He, he was no curmudgeon. He was no like, Oh, only old work was good. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't like yeah. back in my day. He, he was never like that. Like, um, he was like that with music, but he wasn't like that with other things. Um, and so like those books, Nancy's, I think, and Nikki especially really affected him. Affect theory, even though he never used the term affect theory, um, he, early on. Anne Hansen's work on emotions, uh, I think, really influenced him. Um, and so there was a lot of intellectual interests that were changing for him. Um, but he wasn't an anthropologist. I mean, and he never want it to be um but he was interested in kind of observing rituals and seeing he he became very interested in the way monks and nuns and lay people in a sense handled handled ideas coming from polytexts and articulated Mm -hmm. them in certain ways i think that if he has stayed around and worked which he said he was retiring and not working anymore so who knows but he certainly was becoming more interested, I know, in in kind of modern poetry in Thailand, um, mm. in modern literature. And so um, at least he talked about it a lot. He was very interested in the questions of time and madness and how modern Buddhists understood madness um, as, and then related that to ideas you saw coming out of Pali narratives um, and, and just the very concept of living in time and what time meant. These are things he never wrote up. Um, but he was quite interesting. He was a really dynamic mind. I mean, you every time you met him, there was a new idea, and only about five percent of his ideas really were you know written down. I mean, I his wife, I, I think, was she she really was privy to like, I think, just and and then Dan Arnold, his colleague at Chicago, were just so privy, I think, to much more than I was on a day to day basis. Um By far, that these ideas, and so he he changed a lot, but it was a pretty dramatic change, and and he he was angry. I don't know about angry at his former self, but he certainly he certainly like in many ways rejected it. But then he had this great reverence for Roy Norman, um, K. R. (laughs) Norman, who was his one of his teachers, who recently passed away. It's sad that his his great teachers passed away after his student. You know, Roy Norman I think was ninety four, and Um, you know, rest in peace. And he, uh, so I know, I know Roy Norman like was, was a big influence on on Steve too. Um, but he did, he did change a great deal and, but he also appreciated change in others. I think, um, like he was very excited when people came out with new ideas and he was also quite angry and impatient when people like stuck with the same idea like you know what i mean if a person gave the same talk like three or four times or versions of the same talk over five years like steve was very dismissive like you know he wanted people to push themselves intellectually um and I think a lot of people in our field, I think a lot of people in historical fields in general or religious studies fields in general, they, they push themselves in terms of learning more stuff. Like they learn more information. Um, Mm -hmm. they read more texts or they learn a language better or another language or, um, they go, you know, they learn more and more about, you know, less and less, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. and he wasn't like that. He, he, he never really developed new skills. Like he never developed learning new vernacular languages. He never, in a sense, changed the style of his writing. He never took on like anthropological methods and theories and brought them to the field. He he was very kind of limited in terms of the theory he read, but he read it really closely. Um, and like, he wasn't just coming up, like searching out was the latest new fad of ideas or anything like that. He was really in a sense, non-expansive in his training, and incredibly intellectually expansive in how he asked questions and new questions he was bringing, and that I loved about
0: him. Yeah. So, so uh, moving on, I mean, what, one of the things that, um, and I can't remember if this is uh, covered in part one or in your introduction, but he was, um, you know, he was very skeptical about uh, our ability to know with even a modest degree of certainty, the ideas, practices and daily lives of early Buddhists and Buddhist mm-hmm. communities. And, you know, I think he, he, he sort of quotes Gombrich as saying, well, you know, in, in, the, in lieu of any hard evidence, we should sort of take the traditions, uh, statements about the Buddhist past at face value until, you know, contrary evidence is brought to light. And he thought this was um, ridiculous and yeah, um, yeah
2: that's a that's a generous
0: term to say ridiculous
2: <laughs> yeah that's in my introduction so you're right yeah
0: and, and yeah and 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 he um but but then of course he didn't think studying polytexts you know was i mean a useless endeavor at all i mean other people no no people, not at all. right and so i mean how did his approach here and i'm 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 kind of thinking here um of one this idea of silence as you that you discuss mm. um of his, and then also this, um, uh, and then also this idea that really comes out in this book of polytext, uh not as accurately reporting, you know, history or the past or what happened, but instead as part of this sort of, uh, you know, Theravada civilization. Yeah, I
1: know that's, that was, a, that's that was, a broad yeah. question.
0: I, 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 I,
2: those are yeah. two, yeah, those are two big, I see that that's interesting. You're asking two questions about things that Didn't really get into the final book. They were in this kind of really unformed first chapter, Mm -hmm. Um, and so I re—I didn't—I didn't didn't remove really anything. I just the first chapter was just not finished, and um, he had a preface, preliminary notes, and a first chapter that all kind of ran together, and then he had the second and third chapter, which are largely included intact in the book. I mean, with obviously. You know, I had to add footnote, I mean, endnotes, notes, and, you know, I mean, sure. I clean up stuff, but like, you know, generally there. But the two parts you're talking about, I do include large sections of what he wrote in that draft mm-hmm. in the introduction. And there are ones called Buddha Gausha's Fantasy, and that's talking mm-hmm. about the impossibility of history and um, Gombrich, uh, Richard Gombrich's work. And um, which, by the way, like he's criticizing that idea. but. Um there wasn't a there wasn't a malicious intent, Oh, of no. course
1: uh, not of I course ne-
2: not. I never got that in uh, you know he, he, Steve attacked ideas he didn't attack people um mm-hmm. I mean sometimes maybe but um but but yeah, but the the interesting part about the impossibility of studying early Buddhist history um yeah, he believed in studying polytext, but you know he really studied polytext as he would often say, like the way you should study in a sense. Shakespeare or the way you should study Tolstoy, like, you know, the way you should study, you know, Homer, like that. You can read stuff for history. um, And you can try to reconstruct daily life or, you know, do minutiae studies of like what material and metallurgy and jewels are mentioned and try to trace every place name and, and date accurately through a philological analysis and, uh, coupled with archaeological evidence, every historical thing. And you're always just going to come up with with these huge gaps. And that, um, and he was quite critical of using Buddha Gosha or what he called the Committee of Buddha Gosha. Uh, he didn't come up with that term, Yana Moli did, but um, mm-hmm. about like using him to, in a sense, construct the first thousand years of Buddha or even 1200 years of Buddhist history. And so he was quite critical of that. Um, and. He called this Buddha Gosha's fantasy. Um, yeah. Let me read part of this. What This is Steve's words. I, I'd rather him speak for himself. Sure. So he wrote, um, although some pre-Buddha Goshen textual sources and languages other than Pali do exist, all of them from the first five century AD, almost all modern scholarly accounts of early Buddhism, with only a very few exceptions, rely on the Pali canon, usually translations of it. I call this Buddha Gosha's fantasy, not because I wish to criticize it or be supercilious about it, but simply as a phrase depicting the polycanon as a rosy uh, textual world of the imagination collected and instructed by Buddha Gosha as early days. But how much earlier? The evidence, as opposed to an over-optimistic, self-deluding guesswork, says it was just at the, least of, at the very least 500 years and a very long time than is now. I use the word fantasy in a sense, given the Oxford English Dictionary's imagination, the process or faculty of forming mental representations of things not actually present. Perhaps when Buddha Gosha collected and constructed as the canon was historically accurate. Perhaps it wasn't. We won't. We don't. And we will never know. And I I, I, I agree with that. I, I, I'm not an early textual scholar. I, I'm not. Um, never have attempted to be not interested. I think I read a lot of it. I, I learn from it. Um, I give it to my students, certainly. Um, but I do agree that, you know, that um, when we read this, we have to read it as ideas. And we, you know, mm-hmm. I not have to, but I think the value of it is reading the ideas, which mm-hmm. are just as relevant now as they were then. And that, there's so much rich story in in whether it's narrative literature at this time or what Steve called systematic literature, um, or that there's so much and so a good historian of Denmark would not read Shakespeare's Hamlet for accurate histories of Denmark, right? Like, right. I mean, there's an, you know like yeah okay we might say a place name Elsinore, you know okay like um and you know but it's much more interesting to know in a sense that like shakespeare might have lost his son Hamnet to death you know his son died and that emotional cost led him to write something called hamlet that took place happened to take place in denmark right or maybe, or he just invented denmark (laughs) you know (laughs) in his mind
0: yeah
2: like like, i'm not a shakespeare scholar but you know what i mean like 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 that's and the thing is the lessons from it and the things we can relate to and the kind of soap ap- opera quality of it, um, and I mean so we're in a, in a good way and like this kind of dramatic, you know, clash between um, humans yeah. and their emotions that mm-hmm. was timeless. Like Steve wanted to make poly literature relevant to everyone. He wanted it mm, to be yeah. read as world literature, the same way you would read, you know. Atar's Book of the Birds, or the El Cid, or you would read Josephus, or you would read Thucydides, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Or would you would read Mark Twain for God's sake? It's like, like he, you know, for him that he was this trained philosopher, studied <laughs> classics, um, who got was very good in languages who loved the world of ideas. He, he loved the ideas of Buddhism and he thought, well, these are really interesting ideas. And if we just relegate them to the study of the history of these mystical others, then they'll always just, in a sense, be in this corner of the humanities and they should be at the heart of the humanities. They should be in discussions of any time we talk about world philosophy, philosophies of psychology, world literature, anything. This, they should be part of the conversation. And I think that's in many ways why he liked the University of Chicago. Um, even though he was in the South Asian Studies Department, he liked the fact that he was working with students across the humanities.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, just to, I mean, wh- you you have a nice quote. This, these are your words for the book that kind of uh, s- sort of uh, reinforces what you were saying there. It's, um, you know, a, you, you write, Steve wanted to get away from the idea that we could use polytext to reconstruct a Buddhist path and to value it instead as beautiful and complex literature to wander in and wonder with. This book is a product of not dismissing Buddhist literature written in classical languages. Indeed. He, um, but for, for Steve, literature was like music, something to delight in and be inspired by, not historicize or use as evidence of something else.
2: So. Yeah. I yeah, I yeah, music, music with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um well, I sounded pretty good there. No, um, no, but, uh, I forgot I wrote that. Um, but, um, I would say, no, that Steve music was hugely important to Steve. I mean, it is metaphors that he used conversations that he started, you know, the way some people like, like, you know, when I got on the Sixers Lakers game was ending and Sixers won one by one, which is great. Um, and like white before we started and like, You know, I grew up in a sports household. I didn't really play, you know, and so I would use sports metaphors for things, right? Um, My dad, um, you know, drove trucks and talked about cars and like, you know, he, so I used car metaphors a lot, right? Like Steve was in the world of music. Like he, he talked in in musical ways. Um, He got along very well with my son. My son's a jazz musician and steve and him like just they only met two or three times but like just had the most wonderful conversations actually steve um wife when i was going through his library after he passed away she must have given me a hundred books on the history of jazz to give my son like it, it was just um and i just he really had this mind where he didn't like charlie hallisey put this very well in the afterword i think um you know, that I mean you stressed this point that Steve Steve always said that, you know, in a sense Buddhists were humans first, right? Mm-hmm. And not everything they thought about was religious and not everything they thought about was Buddhist in a sense that and Steve was a human being first. Like that um the listen going to the jazz show and having a nice walk and a good talk and a nice meal, like was was as important as pouring over, you know. Foucault, you know Mm -hmm. and and in that way i think the students found him very um infectious i think they also found him very frustrating because in a sense um it was maybe this is where steve and i are similar (laughs) it's hard to like stay on on point (laughs) you know because it was always (laughs) conversations are always expansive you know what i mean like yeah on terrible sides steve's sides were just so much more interesting than <laughs> okay, so
0: so um i I should mention for listeners too that um, I mean, maybe we should get into this, but uh, Collins also had very strong views about translation, and mm-hmm. um, you know, writes a lot in this book about um, you know certain, ter- you know, certain terms that we should use or shouldn't use, or the way in which. Uh, he seems to have had strong opinion about not using theological, like English words, for example, borrowed from, you know, Christian theology or monastic institutions or whatnot. But, um, and so, um, but anyway, listeners will have to read this book to, uh, look at all that, but
2: there's um, a lot of that that was cut out, uh, yeah. Um, Steve, yeah. Steve, Steve wasn't, I, you know, he was a translator, obviously, but what, you know, in many ways, Steve's what is an etymologist. Like he loved the history of words.
0: Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. The, um, so, so the, so the book has this really nice introduction where uh, you sort of give this, uh, where you also talk about the parts of the book that you ended up not including um, and quote a lot from it. Um, And then it's got this very nice afterwards by Charles Hallisey. And then the main section of the book or the book itself is this uh, these two sections, one titled Wisdom and the other Practices of Self. And then there's a very uh, short conclusion. And uh, as opposed to other interviews, I'm not going to try to sort of go through and summarize the whole book, partly partly because you're not even though you were i mean this book is part yours you know since you're not steve collins but also because i think the nature of this work is just um it's so uh there's so much detail
1: yeah
2: you, um, ha- you have this is this is the type of book that you don't look in the index and discover the term you're interested in read those two pages or read the introduction get the argument and leave it alone like this is a book you have to sit with you you almost have to read it in a sense as, like a guide for daily living. Like it's a a very reflective book Um, and it's non like informational. Like you're not going to learn about Buddhism, but you're going to learn in a sense as Charlie Hallis used to say um, uh, to me when I was a student is that uh, and to all the students, uh, you have to learn from it. And Mm -hmm. I I really do do think that's it. is that, you know, as Levi Strauss would say, you know what I mean? This book is good to think with, you know? Mm, Yes. Um, And it's, yeah, it's, you're not gonna, you're picking up this book. I don't think you're gonna learn one thing about Buddhist history or Buddhist stories. You might read a few really fascinating, fun stories, but mm -hmm. you'll certainly learn a way of thinking about Buddhism and thinking about literature and thinking about the meditative life, the contemplative life, this, you know, he hated the term spiritual, but
0: um, yeah, reflective
2: life, you know?
0: So, so, so I, I, so I just wanted to mention the sort of main thrust of, um, I mean, not, not summarize it, but just the part of the main thrust of the first and section sections in the first uh, section entitled wisdom. It's, it focused on the, it focuses on the uh, Jataka stories. So these are the stories about, the Buddhism of former lives before he became the Buddha. And um, you know, in the history of uh Buddhist studies, these have often I mean maybe not so not so much now, but earlier at least, uh, you know, these were dismissed as sort of, you know, folklore or Mm. didactic children's literature or whatnot. And you know, Collins instead argues that these stories had uh more of an audience among educated Buddhist elite than did, you know, Buddhist texts about you know, doctrinal texts. Sure.
2: Um, and they had an audience among everyone. And, he, you know, he would say that they were just as sophisticated as what he would call systematic literature or doctrinal, you know, abidomic or uh, commentarial literature. Like, um, I mean, commentary. Like, um, he would say that these stories have the emotional depth and emotional complexity um and and theoretical in a sense i mean the ability to reflect conceptually on them as deep as any other types of buddhist literature and and any type of literature period and so um and that was extremely important to him um and that would say yeah i would say the first chapter is is really about the wisdom but the wisdom that we can get through stories um mm-hmm. and stories that seem to have a lot of sex and romance and adventure and murder and and all of the and comedy lots of I mean, Buddhist poly narratives can be hilarious um and I really just you know sometimes absurd in like the things that are happening, but hilarious but so complex in in their humor too and um I often just sit and read Jataka's, with my students like we just read them and and they're i mean because i'm them students all over the place in many different languages and it's we laugh and and we we get into the stories and and steve would too so you would think that a, t- a chapter titled wisdom <laughs> would be about the Abhidhamma or would it be about like specific buddhist teachings on non-attachment or the five pre the khandas or or um You know the four truths of the noble ones, and and you know like you think it would be about that, and and it it wasn't. His chapter on
1: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
0: Yeah. He 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 also uh I don't know how much I want to get into this, but I he, he does mention in here and then this is relevant. I mean it's relevant in both chapters, but his his this distinction he made makes between um narrative thought and mm-hmm. systematic thought and corresponding to kind of like Dhamma Oh Dama like, look. I'm Dhamma kidding. 1 and Dhamma 2, which readers of uh, Nirvana and other Buddhist felicities will be uh, familiar with, of course. Um, I
2: always fought with him. I hated that designation. Yeah. I, him and I argued about, not argued, I always lost the argument. So is that, you know what I mean? But like, I like systematic and narrative. It makes perfect.
0: Yeah. So, so w- 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 would you just kind of explain like briefly what this distinction was that he was making?
2: Sure. He was saying that they shouldn't be ranked. Um, as one or the other, that somehow learning through stories was not as important as learning through doctrine, right? And mm-hmm. and in many ways, I it, it was hard to identify what, you know, if you really think about it, there's not a ton of doctrine sometimes, right? Like that it is almost it's a lot of story, like narrative really dominates the pages. I mean, even in the Vinaya, like the Vinaya commentaries and so, they, it's just lots and lots of stories and sutas mm-hmm. are stories in a sense, right? And the Gatakas are stories and the Dhammapada Atikata, which is very popular stories, and you know, the whole, you know, uh like is is stories. I mean not all stories, but a lot of them and or witty aphorisms and things like that, that um that these shouldn't be dismissed as like stories for miracle tales or stories for children or stories for a popular audience, and that the Abhidhamma which how many people really read um, is in, you I mean the actual seven volumes they read in, you know, anthologies and, and commentaries and things like, if they read them, um, are, is reserved for higher scholars. And, um, you know, so that you, but you can learn, as he said, systematically.
1: Mm-hmm. you know
2: if this happens do this if this happens do this or if you confront it with the problem of good this is what's happening this 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 and this and you know mm-hmm. you have you know the Abhidhamma in terms of it's about senses and the body and bodily reactions and emotional reactions and the construction of the person and personhood and relations in society and and so it reads like a phone book in some ways right it's you know what mm-hmm. Heidegger would say you know documentary like it, it, it's like systematically going through an instruction manual of daily uh, or of the way the mind works, right? And mm-hmm. narrative is about all the things in between. Like it's it's all the stories we tell and all the stories we tell about ourselves to ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. Every person's biography in a sense is the story they tell themselves, right? And they tell themselves that story differently every time. And every person they meet, they tell in a slightly different way, right?
1: And we're <laughs> surrounded
2: by people's stories so much so when we describe other people when like if we so Sam'm talking with my son about a person I met on the subway, I would tell like oh, this person had an interesting story. Let me tell you about what this person said like you know, and then it, their story that I was telling about will become my story and then he might think that was funny and tell somebody else and become their story, right? That we learn through narrative, we learn through stories, we learn how to relate in the world. And Steve often talked about like how we teach each other and how we give advice to each other, and that we, in a sense, um, allow somebody to interweave their stories with ours. And uh, that um, poly narratives did this because you would have these really great stories, and so many of them, there would be just endless content for sermons and endless contents for sitting around monks and nuns sitting around or lay people sitting around and telling stories that in a sense people would figure out ways of acting through the stories and more importantly is that there were so many characters in poly stories that in a sense you could find a character you could relate to at different times in your life like sometimes you would be this character in your life sometimes you'd be this character there's so much intrigue and betrayal and love and loss and death and relations between mothers and children and siblings and questions about power and questions about longing and, and questions about disease and death and questions about duty and where's to be a good daughter or a good son. Like, there's just so many stories that everyone can relate to them. Everyone's lost someone everyone's gone through this type of struggle. Everyone questions their identity. Everyone questions what they should do with their life. Everyone questions, why would this person love me? And like any question that you ever have, any story that you involved in, any story that you're living right now will be present in so much poly literature. There are just so many stories. It's an endless number of examples. So you, you can live in it you can place yourself. And then second thing you can do is that in a sense, You don't get an easy answer like just as nothing in life is easy is that it's always complex there's always over determined reasons everything happened and there's never a yes or no answer is that these stories don't give a definitive answer about how you're supposed to solve a problem they make you go through what the characters go through and at the end in a sense you're still struggling about do i agree with what this character did Would i've done the same thing and so you in a sense you don't give an answer, but you live the question, you live the struggle. And then finally, in a sense, you you realize through reading these stories, and I think Steve would really argue this, that you're not alone, that whatever pain you're going through, you're not alone. And um, that there's such a value and wisdom to that is that like imagine this. This is something that Steve and I talked about once a long time. Imagine someone comes to you and says, like, they're really struggling they're thinking about getting an abortion, right? And they're, it's a, it's a you know, they're, it, it's not a political thing. It's not a choice, pro-life or pro-choice. It's not that. It's that they don't, you know, they know it's not the right time in their life. They, they know it's not the right person they want to be with, but they don't know. Maybe they can make it work. What if this child, you know, could grow up and just be wonderful? What What if their parents had aborted them? Like, they're, they're talking to you and they're, they're, bearing their you know what i mean pain to you mm. and you sit to them and you say like well roe v wade said this and you said that well the bible says this and this and there is this is when the life starts and this is when a soul begins and this is a child at three weeks can feel pain or in then his fingernails at eight weeks or whatever right and they right. say, well, you know what? You should read the uh, WebMD about this. This is what they say about abortion procedures. And these are the laws that say, you wouldn't, you would not listen to that. friend. You would <laughs> walk away. You would say, that's the worst advice I've ever gotten. Or even worse, they don't give you a lot of information. They tell you what to do. You should definitely have this child because every child matters. Or You should definitely have an abortion because fuck that guy. Like he, you know, he's not somebody you should have a kid with. Like. You would not want that advice either. You wouldn't want a definitive answer, right? What you would want is the person to sit with you, relate stories that they've heard, films that they've seen, poems that they've read, friends that they knew in the past that might have had an abortion, um, a great you know play that they once saw about this. You, know, you would want them to tell you stories. You would want them to listen and sit with you and share their story of pain. Maybe they haven't gone through that exact thing. What they have gone through, well, they didn't know if they should be with the right person or they didn't know if there was such an idea of a soulmate or they didn't know, you know, you would want to hear them share a story because you were sharing a story. And for Steve, that was so important. It wasn't systematic knowledge. In a sense, is fine and good. You learn from it. You document it. You shelve it, right? It becomes what I like to call, Steve didn't use this term, but Lauren Matori, um, I like a scholar of um, um, uh, West Africa and Brazil, what he talked about was trait geographies. Like we can know the traits of people. We can know the traits of Buddhists. They believe this. There's this number of them. They live in this country. They produce this number of texts. They produce these texts at this states. That's a traits of somebody. You get a trait geography of the people. To you say, right? um, but Steve wanted to see the processes of the way people think. Right. and and this even though that's coming from a Tory and, and I certainly abide by that like like Steve I think would agree with that that he, he would say in a sense it's the the way people think and the way that they work through problems are more important in terms of learning from that than the answers to the problems themselves mm. so so that kind of
0: relates to the the, 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 the second chapter in the book, uh, pr- Practices of Self, and and uh, here in this chapter, uh, Collins says that one of the reasons he wrote this book was to, and I'll, I'll quote here, provide some comparative material to the work of Pierre Hadot on, to use the standard slogans, spiritual exercises and philosophy as a way of life, and to that of Michel Foucault on practices and technologies of self. And subjectivity and truth, so he he's trying to sort of you know put uh, Theravada Buddhism into or a certain aspects of it into kind of conversation. But mm-hmm. and 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 this part of the book is incredibly rich, and we can't summarize it here. I don't think we should try. But one of the arguments that he's making in this part is that, um, and again, he goes through a very uh, 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 fascinating argument to get here. But he, he basically Um, argues that uh, ultimate truth is only expressible through nouns and adjectives, Mm -hmm. not through verbs. And going back to his distinction between narrative thought and systematic thought, uh, you know, he says narrative thought requires verbs. And his conclusion from that is that ultimate truth cannot be expressed in language, which kind of makes me think, and I, I don't think I followed the argument through This entire, I mean, I I got a little lost at Parsons chapter, but it seems what you just said kind of, yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, what you were saying, he says, like, it it kind of echoes some things in the first chapter where it's like, these are the stories that sort of, you know, kind of uh, tell people how to live. But basically, he says that argues, he concludes here that, you know, practices of the self necessarily require what he calls consensual truth, which is related to narrative thought. and Mm -hmm. so. It's um, I mean, I don't. Is there anything you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, I, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think you, you, know, it is very hard to summarize, and I, I think, yeah, he, he would say that like it, learning ultimate truth or, or it, it's part of your entire body. It, it's part of a lifestyle. It, it, it's not just meditation. He criticized this as like you read and then you meditate. No, it's part of, in a sense, the way. You know Foucault's understanding of like the technology of the self. It's it's this part of self-forming, right? And he like the term exercises, you know, from Hadot. and that um, that and he and he. Steve was a great student of Catholic monastic history, and um, and 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 we got along that way as well, because that's something I I went to a monastic high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up very super Catholic. Um, And so, you know, this was a really big part of my education and this work really resonated with me. And I, you know, when I read Steve's stuff on this early on, he's written about this for a long time, actually. Um, And he's been thought, he thought about this for a long time is that, you know, he wanted to see like, in a sense, the physicality of knowledge, how you sleep, how you eat, how you walk, um, you know, how you meditate, how you garden, you know, like. Um that these were all very, very important actions, and that that was part of a larger truth and and that you couldn't simply like pick up something and read it and know it you you had to you had to live it and um you know he used the term like physical imagination like you know there's a physicality to to everything um mm. and that um it, it, But he was really—he wasn't like against like mindfulness and yoga and all these things. But he was against that if you did this as kind of a separate task, you know, Mm. a larger monastic life, um, which he saw as a very social life. Actually, interesting, you know, he—that was one of the etymol—like you said, etymologies. He hated this idea that monks were associated with like being, you know, um, you know. He he thought it was a, a misnomer that in a sense it was this idea of being. Uh, isolated and non-worldly, right, that that he saw in the sense as something that it was a different type of homosocial, you know, society um, and a choice to be unmarried, you know, he was against the way we translate celibacy, celibacy sounds like not having sex, but he would say in French it would mean, you know, non-unmarried, and like that these were religious, profa- unmarried religious professionals, they weren't isolated monks meditating in caves they they were social beings um but they took in a sense the art of daily living seriously and they the physicality of their life and the cerebral nature of their life were something that were intertwined um and he 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 stressed this Um, and i think that goes like what i was saying about music is that you know one part of his mind and one part of his body, like moving his body, listening to jazz, wasn't wholly different from reading a uh, poly text, right? That, that they were part of a larger kind of technology of the self. and, um, you know, he, this, it is a complicated section and I included parts of what were in the original introduction of the book in, in my introduction that I I, I hope in his words, I think, summed it up um, pretty well. Um, And I'd like to read just one passage of what Steve wrote. Um, These are these technologies of self. He's talking about relating back to Foucault. He's saying these are techniques which permit individuals to affect by themselves a certain number of operations on their own bodies, on their own souls, on their own thoughts, on their own context. In this way, to transform themselves, to modify themselves and to obtain certain states of perfection, of happiness, of purity, of superna- supernatural power, and so on. Let's just call this kind of techniques a technique or t- technology of the self. And then he goes on, he says, again, what he says, indeed, what he learned, well, I wrote this, but what he learned from Hadell and Foucault, especially in practice self fits very well with the Theravada Buddha project. And then this is Steve writing, Steve says, the phrase exercises and practices of the themselves could be taken very widely indeed. So why did they become almost useless as an instrument of comparison? Those of my readers who have had children or even have younger siblings grow up will know that all parents and obviously all societies have to teach children everything. In Foucault's terms, they have to be taught how to behave in any and every domain, how to walk, eat, deal with waste matter, speak, and in what languages, to speak, how to dress, how to interact with others physically and mentally, the entire process of a culturalization um, in this sense, in all societies, all civilizations, all cultures is a cultivation of a certain kind of self, a certain kind of subject of experience and action restricted to each community's mores. One might say a culturalization is a universal necessity, but there's no universal culture. Cells are always constructed in specific times and places in specific ways. The results differ widely, but the process is the same. This learning of specific forms of physical and mental self-control, this ascesis from childhood on, and the interjection of culturally specific ideas is part of what constitutes sanity in any, and that's his interest in madness, in any given social context. The interjection and performance of certain basic components of human sociality, what he also says called morality, which is human social- sociality is morality, can be a kind of wisdom. Promulgated at length in Buddhist texts is helpful in this context. To remember that the French word sage, when used of children can mean both wise and well-behaved. And the formation, which refers to both school and university education, the inculcation of a certain kind of subjectivity of forming a certain kind of character. And this was hugely important That in a sense, a self was cultivated, right? And it wasn't Mm. cultivated alone. It was cultivated in a society. And in a sense, Buddhism provides a wisdom of how that's done in that specific context. And that specific context can teach us things, just as a Catholic monastic context can teach something. But just also as a university (sighs) campus can teach something about how the body's comports, in a sense, learns wisdom through physicality and through society. And, mm-hmm. uh, and and not just moral teachings, right? But and systematic teachings. And, and I thought he used Foucault and Haidouin. And I, the funny thing is, you know, I had read Hado when I was a long time ago, and I thought it was kind of trite. To be honest with you, I, I I just thought like, what is the big deal about this? Like this is like, you know, like anybody who's grown up religious would understand this, right? but Steve made me read it in a much more profound way. And also in a sense, Steve made me respect in a sense, my own tradition and like my own own rituals in ways that I never did. Like, um, you know, that when you live and breathe the physicality of a religion and, um, and I, and I, you know, I never reflected upon that growing up. And, um, and I think a lot of my students don't do that. They they come to Buddhism because they want to learn cool Buddhist ideas or hear about cool monks and nuns and like they don't want to, in a sense, change their lifestyle. All. They just want to add on new knowledge to it and in a new cool story to tell someone. But mm-hmm. this idea of saying, well, what would it mean to comport myself and transform myself in these certain monastic ways, and then what would it mean to read texts doing that? I actually teach a class where students have to take dress restrictions, eating restrictions, sleeping restrictions, like, and they have to do it for three months. And I have to say, my students, in a sense, read Poly in very, very different ways after going through that experience. You know? and, mm-hmm. and and Steve, in a sense, him and I talked a lot about this too. And um, he loved the monastic life. He loved being around monks in Thailand, and, and you know, I he delighted in it. He delighted in learning and watching people's lives and, and he was monastic in his own way, like in his own like dress. Even like he, God's sakes, he seemed to only have one shirt and one, no, he had two shirts. I, remember, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I mean, he had many more than two, but like, I would just always see him in just one of two shirts and like one pair of black jeans. And like, um, like he, you know, he, that he loved Weber and like Tolstoy because they led these like monastic lives, but were lay people you know what I mean and like yeah and, yeah and so like I don't know like this for him the body mattered right and then sadly his body failed him you know and it failed him so he's so young you know, and yeah. so, you
0: know. well I think that's probably a good note to end on I mean I mean I think listeners will realize that um it's an extreme from our conversation that it's an extremely rich book it's I, I've, I mean, I've read um I use some of uh, Colin's Nirvana, both Nirvana books, in some of my classes, and mm. and um, good choice, you know. <laughs> and, and I can say is that what I can say is that I always find his reading like slow going
2: mm.
0: and hard going, but reward rewarding, yeah, <laughs> very rewarding, and something that you I can, you know, one can go back to and you know many times. So, uh, yeah,
2: I, I think that's great. I think I'm, I'm, your students are lucky. You
0: know, your students yeah. are, and,
2: and, and uh, we all are. We all are yeah. lucky. Are. I mean, Steve, um, my life will never be the same, you know. Well,
0: I want to thank you again, uh, Professor McDaniel, for taking the time to speak with me today um, and to our listeners. And that's it for today's new books in Buddhist studies. See you next time.
2: Thank you very much. With lucky landslots,
0: you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.